to check this to make sure. Yeah, 35 to 40. Acts 16, 35 to 40. Okay, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want it to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. All right, what's going on? Everybody all right? It is, uh, in case you didn't notice, starting to get humid. Some of you are fanning yourselves. I see it. Well, you know, pray for the winter to come again and be cold again so it doesn't get all hot in here. I need one of those hankies. I'm going to be going like this. Okay. Um, all right, so uh, our passage today, we're in Acts 16, and maybe you noticed, and, and she's reading this, and you're like, that's not where we are. You're right, and you've been paying attention, and you get a gold star. Um, we, I'm, I'm skipping a few verses, and I'm going to go back to them. I was studying. There's this whole thing that happens, and I'm going to walk you through sort of that to catch us up to where we are. Um, and I'm studying this passage, and I'm not ready. I need to read a couple more books on, this, on some of these things that are going on here. Um, but I am ready for this passage, um, and I think what we're going to do is for the month of February, we're pretty much going to stick right here in this passage. Um, from really after Lydia's conversion, where we were last week, up until about this point right here, where we're about to hit chapter 17. So I'm going to, this week I'm here, uh, next week I'm probably going to go back and do the top, and then do the middle, and because there's all these things that are happening, there's a lot of context that needs to be understood, there's talks of households, and households coming to Jesus, and what does this mean, how does a whole household come, and, and um, there's this girl who's demon-possessed, and she's telling the future, and they're making money off of her, and that, so there's a whole thing that's going on, and I need a little more time to research this, it kind of, it kind of popped up on me, but um, I was really excited about this particular passage, and I have a lot of stuff gathered for it, so we're going to do uh, this passage today, and then we're going to go back to it, so um, first thing I want to do is walk real quick through the flow of the passage to catch you up to where we are, because suddenly... We're in prison. And you're like, why is Paul and Silas in prison? Great question. Um, so what happens is this. In verse 16 through 18, Paul and Silas, they, they come across this slave girl. And like I said, they cast this demon out of the slave girl. Um, and she has uh, these supernatural prophetic abilities that her masters are making money off of her uh, in this way. So they cast the demon out, and with it comes economic disruption. So we see that in uh, verse 19 through 24. Um, these guys are making money unjustly off of the backs of this slave girl, and, and so they disrupt that. They can no longer make money off of her. They get upset. They take Paul and Silas to prison. Uh, I'm sorry, to the magistrates. They file a bunch of false charges against them, uh, and they get thrown in prison. And verse 25 through 35, there's this miraculous thing where um, there's an earthquake and all this, and, and they're free from prison, but they don't leave because if they escape from prison, the prison guard will have to kill himself uh, and that's a whole other thing we need to talk about. It has to do with the Roman honor system. Um, 
and they wanted to lift, save his honor. Um, and so there's all this stuff going on. Um, but today, we're right about here in verse 36 through 40, where it says, Pilate and Saul, basically, Paul and Silas refuse to go quietly and instead demand justice for what has happened to them. That's where we are today. Um, so after this disruption in the slave economy, um, when Pilate, Paul and Silas cast the demon out of this slave girl, we read this passage right here. It says, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews uh, and are throwing, uh, throwing our city into an uproar. So I want to pause there, verse 20. Um, in verse 20, we actually see the real reason for all of the persecution. This is, um, there's two forms of oppression in this passage. And I want to have time to talk about both of them. So that's why I want to split them up mainly. Um, there is economic oppression in the first half, and then there is racial oppression in the second half. Um, and so I want us to see that uh, they're falsely accused because of who they are, because of their nationality, because they're in a, a Greek city, um, a Roman city. And so they get falsely accused. It says the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. So not only are they thrown in prison, they're beaten and tortured before, beforehand. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. It even goes on to say that he, he shackled uh, their hands, uh, their feet in stocks. So um, all around bad time happening for them. Uh, but what we know about, about, about God is, is, is really very simple. Um, God's not interested in prisons. He's not interested in prolonging prisons. He's not interested in locking people up. God never has been. As you move through the text of the Bible, the thing you see over and over and over again that nobody wants to admit is that God is constantly freeing people from prison. This is all he's doing constantly. Um, thousands and thousands of people throughout the text are freed from prison in various creative ways. Sometimes the gates just swing open. Sometimes there's an angel that walks up and kicks them and wakes them up. But hey, we're getting out of here. God is letting people out of prison. There is, there, uh, prisons are tools of the empire. That's what they are. They, are. they always have been. God has given us many ways of dealing with evil in the world. God has, has given us, and through the teachings of Christ, many ways to confront evil and to take care of evil. And we're going to talk about some of those ways this morning. Uh, but prison is not one of the ways that God has given Christians to use. Um, and we, at some point, we have to come to terms with this as, as a culture, that this is not what Jesus is doing. Um, Jesus is a restorer. Jesus is one who um, makes people whole again and restores them to the body of, of himself and to society. If you read the Bible cover to cover, this is what is happening. God is, is completely and totally freeing people from this. Even the start of Jesus' ministry, he starts off by saying, I have come to bring good news to the poor and to free all those who are enslaved and imprisoned and oppressed. Um, he's very specific about the whole thing. And so one of the most beautiful things about the Bible is that prison in the Bible, it doesn't become a tool of God to stop evil. Prison actually becomes a tool of God uh, to empower his own people. Um, when God's people end up in prison, that is always a badge of honor. That is always a time when God is about to strengthen them and show them his glory and do something important and huge. Um, no matter, uh, it basically, one of the songs that we sang this morning is like, this is what God does. He takes, he takes ashes and makes beauty. He, ta he takes this and he turns it into this. And so God takes this tool of the empire to maintain control of unwanted people and he turns it into something that displays his glory 
by freeing people from this thing. Um, God's intention is never to lock people up and forget about them. It is always restoration and reincorporation into the body. Um, so instead, it has become a tool of, of, of how God reveals himself through righteous people. There is not a character uh, in the Bible. There's not a single apostle. There's not a single person doing the work of Jesus that doesn't somehow end up in prison. Um, and I think that's something to be pondered. Um, all through church history, as you go back, what you see is people who are doing the will of God the most fervently and the most accurately always end up in prison. It is one of the revelations that, like, uh, of, of, of reading church history is that like, wow, every one of them has a criminal record because of the empire doing this to them. So, um, at some point... Um, because God is not interested in locking people in prison, here's what God does. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open, uh, flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. So God has literally brought Paul and Silas into this prison to sing hymns to all the imprisoned people as a way of like encouraging them. And then when this huge thing happens and God says, you're free, what do all the prisoners do? They join Paul and Silas in saving the life of the person who has jailed them. As if to say, you are not our enemy. You have never been our enemy. We want you to become one of us. And spoiler alert, he does. And we're going to talk about that uh, in the coming weeks. So, um, the apostles have entered into this holy work of cross-carrying. Um, and uh, they don't escape. They don't overtake the guards. They don't get violence. In fact, they decide that if they escape, it would, it would be detrimental to this man. And he would uh, endure suffering. So they don't. Um, and so let's go a little farther. And when it was daylight and the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer, with the order, release those men, because there's a whole thing that happens in the middle there, and we're going to talk about that eventually. We're trying to get to where we're going to hang out and build a campfire and talk, right? Here we go. Uh, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us so quietly? No. Let them come out themselves and escort us out. Okay. This is the cross-carrying part. When Jesus says, take your cross up and follow me. Like, this, these guys are, are, are going to stand their ground, and they're going to point out the injustice that has been committed uh, to them. So instead of leaving their jail cell, Paul and Silas, they refuse, and they demand that the ones who are responsible for the injustice come and answer for what they have done. Wrongly accusing, wrongly imprisoning these men, um, and it admits because they were outsiders, they were foreigners, they weren't the same race and nationality. These were Jewish minorities, uh, and they are being mistreated in this city. Um, so these magistrates have used all of their power for, uh, for the financial gain of their own friends. This guy, these slave owners who own this girl, make a lot of money off of this girl, and apparently they are friends with the magistrates because this is how power works. Power and money working together to maintain power and Money. I hope everything was okay. Um, and so, 
this man goes to the magistrates and says, I need a favor from you. I just, I just need a little favor. Um, there's some guys causing a bit of a ruckus. It's cutting into my profits. I need you to do something about this. And they do. Um, they throw them in prison. They have them beaten. And then, eventually, the jailer becomes a follower of Jesus. Uh, and they begin to lose control of the situation. And what you do when you lose control of the situation is you try to make it go away really fast. And so after losing control of the situation then finding out that they are actually Roman citizens, and so now they realize, oh, I just thought these guys were Jewish men. Now they're Roman citizens. Now I'm in trouble. Um, now everyone's going to know what I was doing. And so they desperately want to make it go away. They try to make the problem go away. But Paul and Silas decide that they will not be made to go away. They will expose the injustice to the whole world, to the entire city, so everyone can see exactly how the system works. Um, and they demand that these magistrates, they say, we're not leaving. We're not leaving. Tell them to come down here, and they can walk us out themselves as if um, not their slaves, but as their equals. I want them to come down. I want them to explain what they have done. And they will walk us as prisoners out of this prison into the public for everyone to see. Now, doing this would be an attack on these men's honor. This honor and privilege that they've had in the city. Romans thrive on honor. They live and die on honor. It determines where you can live, how much money you make, um, the circles that, that you eat with at the, at, the, at the tables of fellowship. Honor was everything. And so Paul is demanding, you lift our honor again in the eyes of all these people. But by lifting their honor, the honor of prisoners, what that means is that their honor is going to drop in society. And they don't want that to happen, obviously. This is, uh, this is a power move by Paul and Silas, who are here to expose injustice. And so an apology was sort of mixed with a, a, a request to leave the city. It says they came, in verse 39, it says they came to appease them and escort them out of prison. I want to show you the bit of the prison here that they were locked in. Um, this is probably not, this is not the one. This is a typical Roman prison. You can't see it because all the lights are on. It's a little too bright for this, but there's a hole in the top. That's how they let the prisoners in. <laughs> right down. And then they, then they come in a side door and then they lock them up and they put them in the stocks. There's a hole in the ground and that's where they use the bathroom. And they would have been chained to the wall, uncomfortable, cold, freezing at night, roasting during the day. Um, this, is where they were, this is where they were, and this is where they refused to leave. Most of us would be like, I'm out, and would go. And they'd say, well, aren't you mad that, about what they did? Yes. Aren't you going to make them pay? No, I don't want to go in there again. So this is one of the tools of the empire. This is how they keep people silent. It's how they keep them sort of subdued if you will. This is how powerful people keep control. People are removed from the scenes of injustice in the hopes of no dangerous memories of what has happened will be lodged in the collective minds of the people. So, so the magistrates want to come in and they say, we're really sorry. Go ahead and go. And they're like, no. This is not how this is going to be. Um, they want to make them go away because they don't want word to get out what they've done to Roman citizens and had their honor drop. And decrease in the eyes of everyone else. Now, um, if you're a fan of history, you've probably heard many stories like this. This kind of thing happens a lot where righteous people are imprisoned and then they refuse to go until they receive sort of acknowledgement of the injustice. The first way to, to solve injustice in the world, the first step you must take 
uh, is by recognizing it and telling them, I see it. I see what you are going through. Most people who are suffering oppression, racism, um, under the, the, the boot of white supremacy, things like that, um, what they need first and foremost is for you to say, I see it. I affirm what you're going through is actually happening to you. You are not crazy. This is real. And I see it, and all these people see it. And then we can begin the work of healing and freeing. But it starts with acknowledgement. And this is what Paul and Silas know, and this is what they want. If you've ever read, this, read the story of, um, of apartheid South Africa, now, um, in Nelson, uh, hold on, let me fast forward here, Nelson Mandela, um, the great South African leader and later president, he was released for prison after 27 years, um, and he was in prison for standing up against racial injustice, and what happens is, after 27 years of, of, of him being in prison for speaking out against the injustices of the empire in which he is living, the jailers show up one day, and they say, hey, you're going home tomorrow. You're going to walk out of this prison. We're going to put you on a plane. We're going to fly you down to Johannesburg right away. Um, after 27 years, imagine. Um, and he hears this, and it, it troubles him greatly. Because he knows they're trying to make him go away. They don't want there to be fanfare and lights and cameras and crowds cheering as he walks out of this jail cell for doing the right thing. Every day that he was in there, sentiment grew for 27 years that it was an unjust imprisonment. And he knew it and everyone knew it. And the longer he's in there, the more and louder the cries got. And they know if they free him, he's going to become this political beast that they can't control. And so when they come to him and they say, tomorrow you're leaving, we're putting you on a plane, flying you to Johannesburg, he refuses. He says, I, I think I'll sleep in my bed tomorrow night. I think I'll stay right here. And here's what he says. I told him that I strongly objected to that. I wanted to walk out of the gates of Victor Vester and be able uh, to thank those who looked after me and greet the people of Cape Town. Though I was from Johannesburg, Cape Town had been my home for nearly 30 de uh, three decades. And I would make my way back to Johannesburg, but when I chose to, not when the government wanted me to. Once I am free, I said, I will look after myself. I think that Nelson Mandela and Paul would be good friends. I think they'd have a lot to talk about. They're very similar in the work that they were doing, and they suffered um, very similarly as well. I think they would have gone along great. Paul constantly was seeking the spiritual, not just the spiritual salvation of the people, but also he believed that the truth should be exposed, and he demanded justice and humanity and equality everywhere that he went. Paul knew the words of Jesus. Paul, several times in his books, quotes um, what would become the book of Matthew. Um, there's an ancient book, apparently, that, that existed called The Sayings of Jesus, and there's a church father named Papias who says it was written by Matthew. And so I think Papias is a trustworthy source. Um, and so Paul knew the words of Jesus thanks to Matthew's writings about the teachings of Jesus. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, uh, uh, near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile with them, uh, go with them two miles. 
Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus has this way of talking about how we respond to injustice in the world um, that he believes and teaches and knows will help establish the kingdom of God, will help free people from injustice everywhere uh, when God's people rise up and live in this way. I mean, with these teachings, Jesus shows us how to expose unjust and oppressive people for what they actually are. A lot of people don't fully grasp what is going on here. Let me break it down into three simple chunks for you. Imagine with me um, that you are just a regular human being in the city and then suddenly suddenly a, a representative of the state who carries a weapon for the empire punches you in the face, slaps you across the face as a way of getting you to submit to them in some particular thing that they want you to do. And what does Jesus say to do? Jesus says to turn the other cheek. Now, if I sort of slap you this way and then you turn the other cheek, what do I have to do now? I can't go like this. I'm going to hit you in the nose and that's a punishable offense under Roman law. I suddenly, to hit that cheek, need to hit backhanded like this. And suddenly I am becoming someone who claims to be higher of status than you are. But in reality, Roman citizens are Roman citizens. And so Jesus says, if you understand exactly what they're doing, if you understand that they are in this way, speaking down to you and oppressing you in this way, expose them for what they're actually doing. Turn the other cheek and force them to treat you like the slave that they believe that you are. This is what he is doing. You go to the next part where Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So imagine that you've been dragged into court. I've already talked about this a lot. Everyone in the ancient world has two articles of clothing, an inner cloak, uh, an inner sort of undergarments, like a, like a equivalent to like sort of an um, Arab man dress today, uh, and an over sort of a overcoat sort of cloak thing that they would wear over that, and that would be sort of the, <laughs> the decorative part. Mine's tan. Well, mine's dark tan. Um, and so this is how they would <laughs> express themselves. Uh, and so the idea here is that someone is being sued for the clothes on their back, which is an unjust thing because this is all that they have. And they're dragged into court, and the guy says, I want his cloak. <laughs> I'm jealous of that guy's cloak. I want that guy's cloak. And he sues it. He sues you for it, and the judge awards it to him. And Jesus says, you know what you should do? Take off the cloak and give it to him. Then take off your undergarments and stand there naked and hand them your undergarments. Because that is illegal. They can't sue you for your undergarments. But basically expose them for what they are actually doing, for what the way they are actually treating you. It's provocative. It is a nonviolent resistance and exposing injustice that is happening to you. Okay? Uh, let's go a little farther to the next one. It says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And in the ancient Roman world, you could, a, a soldier was legally allowed to get off their horse, take their pack, and put it on the back of some Jewish person and say, I want you to carry it one mile because I'm tired and I'm at work and I need a little, little break with my feet. And so he can basically punch you and push you and force you to carry it for a whole mile. But he can't go more than a mile. That's unjust. That's cruel treatment of other human beings, other Roman citizens. And so the idea here that Jesus says is, oh no, when that mile is up, take off running. Go the second mile. Make that man get down off that horse and chase you, calling out, please stop. Stop carrying my things. No, no, please don't. Like, draw attention to the oppression that you are enduring. Make them admit it. Jesus is provocative. Jesus is, is teaching nonviolent, brilliant 
resistance uh, to his people. And when Jesus, uh, we're going to go a little farther in just a second. So um, you might be surprised, actually. You might not be surprised. But you might be surprised to find out that not everyone agrees that justice is at the center of the biblical message. There are many Christians who choose not to believe that God cares about injustice in the world, that God only cares about the souls of people, and that's all. But what they're going through in this world means nothing. This is why um, the Great Awakening, what, what modern church historians sort of point to as like the great, um, sort of the great revival of, of the Americas, like where, where these great preachers stood up and preached the gospel and thousands and thousands of people became Christians and the fact is, that was a, pro, a pro-slavery movement. And nobody wants to admit that. These men all owned slaves. And the best way to preach the gospel in this context is to completely ignore justice, issues of justice, and just talk about what happens after you die. So that you can say, look, in the, in the end, this is all going to work out. You pray the prayer, I'll pray the prayer. You'll suffer under my rule the entire time. But when we die, everything will be hunky-dory. And this is how the gospel was presented for many, many decades, and for a couple centuries in America. Um, there are many that argue that such earthly matters are totally unrelated to and irrelevant to the gospel. By the way, this is not a Valentine's Day message. <laughs> I apologize. Um, it doesn't get more lovey-dovey. Although I would like to talk at some point about the, uh, our deficient theology of singleness. And I want you to know, if you're single here today, if you don't have a Valentine... Uh, you are in the boat with every single apostle and Jesus. Just want you to know, you are complete, you are lacking nothing. Let's keep moving. Um, in the U.S., the most serious, serious theological tensions that exist are divisions that revolve around whether or not justice work has any place in the church at all. And I could prove this to you from my inbox. Like, people get mad when you talk about justice, when you talk about confronting justice. Um... Paul and Silas were not content serving just the souls of people. They weren't. They also cared about how sin enslaved people and how it allowed justice to thrive. For them, this moment required reconciliation. But reconciliation doesn't happen without truth-telling. That is the only way it can happen. The only way to create evenness is to tell the truth from the beginning. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how justice works. A uh, uh, book recommendation. I'm, just, I'm, I'm making a lot of these uh, in a the couple of weeks here. Um, um, I try to lead, read a lot of um, different times a year, different types of books. I'm reading a, a lot of books by black theologians right now um, because it's Black History Month. There's a book I recommend uh, called I Bring the Voices of My People by uh, Shaniqua Walker Barnes. Um, talks about how racism functions. Um, she's, a, she's a theologian. She's a sister in Christ. Um, read her words. She'll teach us a lot, um, especially my white brothers and sisters. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how injustice works. So this entire chapter is full of stories of slavery and oppression, and if you want to know how to fight oppression, then you need to understand how it works in the first place. Um, and Shaniqua Walker-Barnes points out that when power is unequal, especially when there's abuse, you can't find reconciliation simply by speaking symmetrically, simply by speaking to everyone at the same time in the same way, um, simply by saying, look, both sides, why don't we just come together in the middle? Both sides, why don't we just come together? Justice cannot come by speaking symmetrically. 
to everyone equally. It doesn't work this way. Um, And by the way, I want to point out the entire book of Acts, the underlying theme of the whole thing is racism. It is Jews and Gentiles learning, ancient enemies, learning how to become a church together. The entire premise of the book of Acts is the inclusion of Gentiles in the church that has always been one particular race of people. And the whole draw of the book of Acts is look at all the things that happened that we need to solve, that we need to fix. Look at all the problems that arise when you bring two ancient enemies together. Look what happens. Look what we have to deal with. And they do. And they show us how it's done. This passage is no exception. But one of the things that you need to know about how oppression works, and Paul understands this, Jesus understood this, um, is that oppression and injustice is one-sided. It is not a two-sided thing. Oppression is always one-sided. It begins and ends with those in power. Only one party can end injustice and oppression and racism, the ones that are perpetuating it. It is a single group. It is not both sides. The people who are being oppressed, they are trying to survive under the oppression. This is what they are doing. Um, so many Americans have a tendency to talk about both sides coming together that somehow the responsibility for racism and oppression of minorities lies, uh, lies with the oppressed, that somehow that some of the fault is theirs, and it's not. That's a lie. It's not true. Oppression is always one-sided. Speaking um, about both sides equally is a strategy that helps comfort the oppressor. It helps make the, the oppressor at ease. When you say both sides need to come together, well, that is catering and making comfortable the actual oppressor and saying, yeah, they did some too. Let's come together and talk about it. The fact is they didn't, and you need to repent fully of the whole thing and get down on your knees before your brothers and sisters and have a bit of a day of atonement and atone for your sins. Um, The oppression of Paul and Silas was not two-sided. I'm sure people that were on the side of the magistrates would easily say, well, they shouldn't have disrupted the economy by casting the demon out of that girl. No, they were doing good. They were doing what was right. The fact that that revealed all kinds of economic structures that were evil and oppressive is not their fault. It is the fault of the oppressor. And so the oppressor needs to come and make things right and restore everything. The second thing you need to know about oppression is that oppression and injustice cannot end without truth-telling. You can do all you want and try to make things right, but if you don't tell the truth about the whole thing fully, without withholding anything, then it cannot be fixed. Justice cannot come about without the full straightforward telling of the truth. Paul and Silas drew attention to the truth at great risk to their own lives. Paul's rule, which he learned from Jesus and passes on to the church, is simple. It's tell the truth no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter what it costs you, no matter how many people leave your church, no matter how many... Business, business deals you lose, no, no matter what, you tell the truth, and you live with the consequences of it. We are a truth-telling people because Jesus was a truth-telling person, and we are attempting to be Christ-like. Because in order to bring salvation, someone has to tell the truth. No matter what it costs you, no matter what pain, no matter if you lose them or not, if someone is profiting from evil, tell the truth. If someone has been taken by a lie or a conspiracy theory or something else, tell the truth. Tell them. Speak it into their eyes with love and compassion because you want them back. Tell it in creative ways. Tell it with your life. Tell it by turning the other cheek. Tell it by exposing various deeds in different ways, through your actions, through your responses to evil. If someone is acting in secret, expose it and tell the truth. Always. Powerful people want to make the things that they have done go away. 
And so powerful pastors who have oppressed and abused, sexually abused women will make them sign NDAs to shut them up. And they should not do so. Tell the truth no matter what. Trust that God will be in that and take care of you. NDAs are always evil, no matter what. Um, the gospel of truth-telling, here's the third thing you need to know. The gospel of truth-telling is not to build, is, the whole point is not to build truth-telling. Uh, I can't even talk. The goal of truth-telling is not to build bridges, but to tear down idols. We don't tell the truth to make everything better. We tell the truth because for a little while things have to get worse. Some idols have to be broken and smashed. Once we, once we see them, they must be destroyed and taken apart. They must. Many people think that the primary goal of truth-telling is to build bridges, but it's not. The primary goal of truth-telling is to reveal the principalities and the powers of darkness so that we can tear them down, not allow them to exist and then just pretend like these things never happened and pretend like they're not still happening. They must be revealed and torn down. To skip the truth-telling in, in favor of unity to say, hold on, don't say these things. Let's, why don't we go for unity instead? Instead of, telling, instead of saying these harsh things, let's have unity. That's called catering to injustice. That's called making the oppressor comfortable. Jesus is not interested in this. Never has been. When people tried to do this, he looked up and he called them a brood of vipers. This is what he did. To skip the truth-telling in favor of, of unity is catering to injustice. Idols cannot be catered to or preserved. If we are ever to find true unity, the idols must be destroyed. That is the only way to unity. Telling the truth, taking down the things that are broken. True holistic salvation will always shine a light on darkness. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, everyone in that entire city had seen him heal people and preach and teach and love and welcome the stranger, and speak to the peasants, and feed the 5,000. They all knew what Jesus was doing. And when Jesus hangs on that cross, they know it was injustice. They know it was wrong. That's part of the work of the cross. This is part of the work of cross-carrying. To put yourself in harm's way because of your love for others. And by doing this, exposing injustice to the world. Paul calls the cross a prographo, a photograph of how things really are. They're flexing their muscle and trying to shut up someone whose teachings were a definite threat to the empire because they, they threatened to turn the Roman honor system upside down. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. No, no, no. The first will always be first and we exist to make sure of this. And when Jesus hangs on the cross, everyone could see that they were evil, that they had no honor, that it was all a lie. Truth-telling is not instinctual. We don't want to do it. Self-preservation is instinctual. No, I want to live longer. I want to have a little more money for a little longer. Keep my job. My investments just need to get a little higher, and then I'll tell the truth. No, you won't. You won't. There'll be more that you can gain. Tell the truth now from where you are, in your position in society, in your position financially and economically. Trust that the church will take care of you. Always tell the truth. 
Telling the truth is not instinctual. For the Christian, truth-telling should become a way of life. Um, to quote my professor Scott McKnight, as we embrace the truth, the Spirit turns us into a committed band of truth-tellers who seek justice. The reason so many church scandals have erupted in the last five, six, ten years is because we are terrified of telling the truth. We want our leaders to be big and powerful and showy. We want our leaders to be cool and powerful. We want them to have power or proximity to power. The church really needs to become uncool again. The church needs to become a little more boring and a little more honest. We cannot continue down the celebrity culture trail. It has dealt us nothing but an entire generation that has rejected the faith because of what they have seen in the last five years. And so we need to begin to tell the truth. No matter what it costs. This is what the church does. This is what Jesus does. Let's pray, and let's have a call-like prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Pray that you would help us to be honest. Help us to speak what should be spoken. Thank you, Father, for protecting us, keeping us together and safe. Continue to guide us into the future that you have for us and the part that we have to play in it all. We love you. In your name. Amen. So if you would stand with me, we're going to end with this, and then we're going to head out. And if you could hang out outside and talk, that would be best. Okay, let's do this color prayer together. Nice and loud. Eternal God, your Son, Jesus Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life for all creation. Grant us grace to walk in his way, to rejoice in truth, and to share in risen life, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Grace and peace, everyone. Love you all. Have the greatest Valentine's Day of your life.